0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: Big welcome to Vivek Ramaswamy. How did I do on the pronunciation? Pretty darn good, man. Pretty darn good. All right. Um, He, um, to the audience, so you know, is the author of a brand new book. It's called Woke Inc., Meaning W-O-K-E, Incorporated. That's right. And it's Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. And I gotta tell you, man, this book is loaded with stuff. And I'm really happy to have you here today, so thank you for being a part of it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I I don't know where to begin, but as I was going through it, I, I wrote down the premise of the book. Pretend to care about something other than profit or power Precisely to gain more of each.
0: That is the moment we live in today. Absolutely.
1: That is how you're trying to describe corporate America? That's how I'm trying to describe corporate America. Explain that. 100%. So I
0: think the biggest threat to liberty and prosperity in America today, Bill, is not big government. It is this new hybrid of big government and big business, each doing what the other cannot because each gets something out of the trade. So if it was 1980 and you're Milton Friedman, or you're Ronald Reagan, you'd say the thing that threatens our liberty and our prosperity and our well-being might have been big government. But today what's happened is that the private sector has realized that it can make money critiquing itself. It can capture government by assuming the role of government instead. And now, especially when you have a new democratic party that's in power, first in Congress, then the Senate and then the White House, they've discovered that big business might be their more, most convenient vehicle for effectuating their policy because they can get private companies to do indirectly what they cannot directly get done through the front door under the Constitution. Wow, okay. That's, that's a, censorship. That's a lot. That's the woke ideology. That's firing people if they don't adhere to an ideology. Government can't do it directly. You get a company to do it. The company wins
1: because they get favors from the government. Government wins because it's able to do what it can't do directly. But you can only get the business to do what you want them to to do if you have a ceo who is willing to do it
0: absolutely so that's that's part of the change in the culture there's, there's kind of two kinds of what i call these woke ceos right there's the kinds who are doing it inauthentically to make a buck that's if i'm just going to be unfiltered and name names let's talk about ceo of goldman sachs let's talk about most of the ceos on wall street they're doing what i call corporate social irresponsibility where they're pretending to care about a particular value diversity women on boards environmentalism Just as a way of tithing at the temple of identity politics so that they can win favors back in return. Just to pick on Goldman Sachs for a second, right? Back in pre-2008 era, what would you do? You'd put an alumnus in the seat of U.S. Treasury Secretary. And when it comes to a Wall Street bailout, you might pick favorites where Goldman wins and Lehman Brothers loses. That's old school corny capitalism. But it was no accident that when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were the front runners in the Democratic primary, that's when Goldman CEO decides to declare from the mountaintops of Davos that we will not take a company public in America, by the way, if they don't meet Goldman Sachs's standards for diversity. And of course, they're talking about skin deep characteristics like race and gender. So they were able to tithe at this new temple. It's a new form of crony capitalism where Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren isn't going to appoint a Goldman alumnus to the seat of U.S. Treasury Secretary. What do we do instead? How do we protect ourselves? We're in a regulated business. This is the way they do
1: it. So that's that's the scammy kind of woke wow. capitalism, oh, right? Okay. All right. Let me let me slow it down. Just yeah, see, did yeah. you, got did a lot you more want to, to say. keep
0: going? Well, I just wanted to distinguish that real quick and then we can, we can pause. Please. That's different, Bill, from the kind of woke capitalism where there's a CEO who actually believes this stuff, right? That's Jack Dorsey, who himself is probably a Marxist at heart, who says that actually, unlike the CEO of Goldman Sachs, I could care less about making another incremental dollar. I've already got 15 some odd billion dollars in my bank account already. A couple more bucks to Twitter's bottom line isn't going to help me or hurt me more. No, the rate limiter for me isn't the amount of money I have. The rate limiter for me is what money itself can buy. And so if I can expand the scope of what money can accomplish, not just buying private jets and second and third homes – but buying power in our democracy by deciding what ideas do or don't get expressed, and I get to use my own ideology to determine those boundaries, that's real
1: power. Wow! So that's okay. real different. Those are two different things so, going on,
0: and sometimes we mix them up when we're criticizing so woke capitalism. So some of
1: the CEOs go are politically aligned with the thought that you're trying to express. Exactly. And some of them are just financially Acting. aligned exactly, to, exactly. to make money. And woke capitalism is the combination of both of those, right? So, so
0: sometimes when people who are really irritated, appropriate so with woke capitalism, they may say it's all one thing or it's all the other thing. What I've discovered over the course of the last year, not only writing this book, but you know, I've been a CEO, I founded a company. I've been an investor before that, both through my real experiences and through writing this book. The thing I've recognized is woke capitalism isn't one thing. It's actually the mix of the two. On one hand, people who really don't don't give a care about the underlying social values they're pushing. It might be feminism today, it might be Nazism tomorrow. Whatever's gonna make a buck, they're gonna push it. That's one end of the spectrum. I put a lot of Wall Street, I put a lot of big pharma in that category. At the other end of the spectrum, you got folks like in Silicon Valley. A lot of these guys at least are in Silicon Valley, where they actually believe in the ideology that they're pushing, but they just say, you know what? we have the power to do it and now we're going to use market power not just to wield power in the marketplace of products by the way that's what antitrust law is supposed to police but no we're going to use our market power to wield power in the marketplace of ideas because if you're mark zuckerberg who's by the way you know a year ahead of me at harvard you know it's no no secret that he wanted to run for president of the united states he might have come to an epiphany to say hey why bother running for president of the united states and go through the messy work of democracy when actually I can just make up my own Supreme Court instead and try the 45th President of the United States in my Facebook Supreme Court rather than the real Supreme Court. If I'm Jack Dorsey, why bother to get elected when I can actually be not only a a self-professed Buddhist-looking guru, but actually be able to exercise my own version of political power by
1: banning the actual elected political leaders. Wow, that's a lot. That's that's a lot. A lot going on there, admittedly. (laughs) I'm going to use a small example. Sure. Because in your book, you write about the fearless girl. Yeah. And so I I, I, thought it was a great example. The Fearless Girl is a small bronze statue down on Wall Street. And I believe she's in a skirt, and I guess her hands are at her side. And I, I don't, is she yelling or is she? She's
0: standing up.
1: Standing up. That's right. Okay. So you say it's become a symbol for girl power. But it's also part of an investment vehicle that was put there by a company that needed a bailout of sorts when it came to what was it? Well, it hara- was, in this particular What's the case, backstory, in this particular case, she
0: So it sort of says S.H.E. stands for fearless girl. She stands against that bull, the, tit- the, the sort of the titanic bull of Wall Street, the toxic masculinity that it embodies. The greed is good mentality. She stands against that for the power of women and feminism. Turns out that that statue was actually commissioned by State Street Global Advisors, and they also have an ETF, an exchange-traded fund that they were marketing with the ticker, I kid you not, S-H-E, all caps. So when they say she, they're not just referring to she, the girl who's standing in front of the statue. They're using it to refer to S-H-E, the ticker of the exchange-traded fund that they're marketing. And, of course, that comes with a buck made for State Street. How is that ETF doing? Well, I haven't really attracted it. I could care less. I'm pretty bored by this. I might be every able to look it up. Of, you keep talking. You know, but, but but it almost doesn't matter because they bring it full circle. So one of the things I talk about is there's three parts to a magic act. And all of this is kind of like a magic act. The final step of the magic act, and it's actually from the movie The Prestige, is the thing that you made disappear. You make it come back. And And if you're talking about woke capitalism, what the prestige actually does is it brings back those dollars. So I kid you not, Bill, State Street. Then brought literally a lawsuit against the woman who designed the statue, saying that she made three unauthorized reproductions of the statue. So no capitalist would applaud yet until you bring the money back. And if you can't bring it back one way, you're going to bring it back the other way by actually suing the woman who created the feminist statue. So it's 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 actually a. A joke that you couldn't have made up. I couldn't but have made they, up an sorry, example that but good. But they put the statue there to make money, right? Yeah, that, That's absolutely. the point I mean, that, you're that, making. That's, they put the statue there to make money. But the ultimate irony is they even went so far as to sue the woman who created the statue because she also created three unauthorized reproductions. Unbelievable. Unbelievable.
1: So this is the Gender Diversity Index, S H E. Uh, it's had a pretty good run it's yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, what the fed's I, pumping out money every day I, well, every asset
0: class is going up you well, know what else, what else is
1: bucks on the 52 week high 70 bucks on the 50- yeah, we we print money yeah. by the dozen every day right. every asset class is going up just look at the housing market So you consider yourself to be a defector I mean I am You're not for, going for back to work you know you've made money I, I don't know if you need the money but you have burned the bridge which was the link well, I'll tell you this. to corporate America, I, I, I have and and I'm OK with it. And the reason
0: I'm OK with it is this, Bill, is I was an investor. I left my career as an investor, had some success doing that, ended up becoming a founder of a biotech company, had good fortunes. You now, there's there's a good good amount of luck in biotech and, and we had our ups and downs. But, you know, it's a multi billion dollar company today that I built over the course of seven years, got drugs to patients that I'm proud of and what what the one i'm probably most proud of by the way is a drug for the treatment of prostate cancer that is that is used by men today in a way that makes me proud i can't actually keep the bottle on my desk every day but i decided that working on that biological cancer wasn't actually the even the most important thing that i could be doing as there were a lot of competent people doing that but i was in a unique position To have seen a new kind of cultural cancer infecting the private sector and nobody in the private sector was brave enough to take on that cultural cancer, this new woke ideology that was spreading from one institution to another that denied the very dream that I had lived, the American dream, the idea that no matter who you were who your parents were, you can come to this country and accomplish anything you ever want. And I lived that dream over the course of my career. And to see this new ideology denying that dream made me want to speak on behalf of people in corporate America today, Bill, who have to make a choice. There is a choice that most people in corporate America have to make today. And the choice is this. Either you get to speak your mind freely or you get to consistently reliably keep your job to put food on the dinner table. But for many people, you can no longer reliably do both. You say the wrong thing at the wrong time, you may be denied a promotion, you might be fired from your job as you know it. And for me, having gotten to a point in my arc of living the American dream, where I don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table, where I've already started and built my own company, I'm not looking for another promotion. I felt like it was my civic duty I'll tell you this. I mean, I, first thing I did after I after I graduated from college was join a hedge fund, became a successful investor, then became a successful founder of a company. I've actually done a lot of things in pursuit of my own dreams and and lived the American dream that way. But I had never really, I had never really served for the sake of service itself. And to me, given the unique position that I was in. The ability to make some enemies in corporate America, but as a consequence, being able to expose something that I think threatened the American dream as I knew it was, for me, part of it. I don't want to be too self-important about it, but it was was my way of beginning to do service in giving back, to speak on behalf of the people who did have to make a choice to be able to speak freely, couldn't speak their minds because it might threaten them in keeping their jobs. I don't have to worry about keeping my job. I don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table. I felt a sense of obligation well, to speak on behalf of everyone else who could. You
1: got some freedom. Um, you're first-generation Indian American?
0: Yeah, my parents came over, late 70s and early 80s. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: Since You're Home born town. in Cincinnati, too, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: exactly. So, You went to St.
1: Xavier High School. You went to Harvard, and off you went to a very successful career. How old are you? Right now I'm 35, turning Th- 36 next month. Look at you. Happy birthday early. Thank you, you said that under... A democratic administration, companies feel pressure to do this, but Joe Biden's only been president for six or seven months. This was happening prior to That's that. That's a fair point. That's a fair
0: point. Let's talk about like for, let's let's talk specifically, right? Let's take an issue like big tech censorship. We we could talk about some of the other issues too, but let's talk about big tech censorship. I think that you saw a significant uptick in big tech censorship after House Democrats took after Democrats took control of the House. Then you saw a significant uptick when the electoral trends were pushing away from from the re-election of Donald Trump, and then you saw it really take off after Democrats took control of not just the House but also the Senate and then the White House. And effectively, the backroom deal that was brokered, the unspoken grand bargain, was that, that big tech platforms were going to censor content that the Democratic Party did not want to see online. They – effectively would call them and testify and say, if you don't take down hate speech and misinformation, we're going to come after you. We're going to regulate you. We're going to break you up. So they weren't hiding this this backroom deal. they were very explicit about it. These guys did that. But in return, they didn't do it for free. They expected the new Democratic Party to look the other way when it came to leaving their monopoly power intact. That's kind of how this arranged marriage works as each side scratches the other's back. Big tech is able to effectively keep its monopoly power intact because Democrats historically were skeptical of corporate power being concentrated. But now they've deprioritized that so long as the big tech platforms are leveraging that corporate power for the greater good by censoring misinformation or hate speech, by the way, as defined by the party in power. And so this stuff traces actually not just to the election of Joe Biden, but back to the 08 financial crisis, right? So, so when I when I first had my first job in New York City, I graduated in 2007 from Harvard, joined a hedge fund right before the 2008 financial crisis. So I had a front row seat to the 08 crisis and what happened afterwards. And what happened afterwards was, you'll remember this, 09, 2010, Occupy Wall Street was literally <laughs> occupying Wall Street. And that was a real threat to big business. So if you're Occupy, if you're Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street was a pretty big threat to your future existence if it actually took over political and social control. But right around that time was the birth of this new breed of the left, the new woke left, which said that actually the real problem wasn't wasn't poverty or economic injustice or corporate power. No, the real problem is people like you, straight white men, the real source of disempowerment through the course of human history. And if you're Wall Street. That was the gift of a generation because they were able to say, actually we don't have to be the bad guys anymore. Corporate Mm. power isn't by definition bad. We could instead jump on board with these new woke values and we could actually emerge as the good guys. So that was the birth of the wow. DEI movement, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, as I, as I like to joke around, a bunch of these big banks here in New York got together with a bunch of woke millennials, woke people my age. Together they birthed woke capitalism,
1: and they put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. That's, that's great. Uh, at one line in your book, you stopped and you said, lost, question mark? You're not alone. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm keeping up as we go here, I, and I, I'm trying to follow up on what I think are the significant points for clarification. But here's what I think. I thought the movement that I traced would go to Nike, mm. right? Phil Knight—that that was the first to bar awakening for me for when a company or a corporation took a public stand. Sure, and it, 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 I, I'm going to say that was ten years ago, perhaps. It's 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 uh, been growing. It's a crescendo. It's been a
0: crescendo for Nike, a little less than 10 years. But Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick, and, absolutely. You know, and
1: a lot of the social statements they made through the commercials. But mm-hmm. I'm still going to walk over to Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street and buy another to pair Nike of, store. Yeah. Uh, of Nike shoes. Yeah. I, I, so I, I love think, them. I think the apparel market is ripe for disruption
0: with a brand that comes to market to compete with Nike, which used to be about excellence. By the way, F- famous Michael Jordan saying... Republicans buy Nikes, too. OK, he, that was his version of saying that he don't want to wade into politics because shoes were supposed to be about selling excellence to mm-hmm. everybody.
1: I think the quote was Republicans buy sneakers, By sneakers too. too. Yeah, but, yeah, but he's referring to Nike as a Nike Clay Tra- guy. Yeah, yeah. Clay Travis wrote the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK,
0: books. OK, good, good. So so, so the, the thing with Nike, though, and I, and I think Nike is such a great example to talk about, Bill, is it opens up a different dimension of this issue that very few people talk about, which is the international dimension. Right. Nike will criticize slavery in the United States 250 years ago all year long, but it's a lot harder to criticize or loosen your dependence on slavery today to make the products that you do from Asia. To operate and do business in China, where John Donahue, I think it was just literally last week, by the way, where his almost exact quote, maybe it was his exact quote, actually, was that Nike is a company of China and for China. He said exactly that or something very close to it. And yet While they criticize injustice here in the United States, while they fund tens of millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter, while they take the Betsy Ross flag-laden sneaker because Colin Kaepernick demands it as an indicia of slavery, they don't say a peep as we're in the middle of a Uyghur human rights atrocity in the Shenzhen province of China, where literally over a million Uyghurs, a million, are in concentration camps, being not only indoctrinated, but going through Forced sterilization, being beaten. I mean, these are human rights abuses at a scale writ large where he doesn't say a peep. Instead, he goes to China and says, we are a company of China and for China without saying a word about injustice. That's not just hypocrisy, Bill. That is a geopolitical threat to the United States. And I'll tell you why. Because on a global stage, that makes corporations, corporations like Nike, like BlackRock, like Goldman Sachs, the international arbiters. Of justice, And China knows this and they treat more favorably in China, not only the companies that don't criticize the CCP, they implicitly give you more favorable treatment if you've also criticized the United States because this does them a great favor on the global stage where now when Xi Jinping is pressed by European Union officials, this is last year, his exact quote, first thing he said when they asked about the Uyghur human rights atrocity was that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. Yang Jiechi, their top diplomat, comes to Alaska earlier this year and lectures us for 15 minutes on how the United States is slaughtering, that's his word, slaughtering black Americans. And and you're going to laugh when I say this, but it's exactly what he said, that China hopes that the United States does better when it comes to human rights. That would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that the global corporations, Nike, Marriott, Disney, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, are enabling it by criticizing injustice here, staying silent over there. Creating a false equivalence between Chinese nihilism and American idealism, and to me, that is the real Chinese virus that we need to fight. It is wow. not a biological virus; it wow. is a cultural virus manifest through woke capitalism.
1: So, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola—they get involved with these statements for the Georgia election battle. Yep, uh, with the two runoffs. What, what was Coca-Cola sounds more like a like a super pack than a soft drink manufacturer. Uh, the
0: Coca-Cola CEO, I think, is from England. James Quincy, it? that's right. He's he's British. British guy. Absolutely. So they
1: get He's an old world man. Uh. And this is a very old world model, right?
0: Because in the old world, you get a bunch of people smoking cigars in a closed room, deciding what's good for the rest of society. I'm sure he loves that.
1: Uh, well, well, what is the incentive on behalf of these CEOs who work and operate out of Atlanta to take a position in these elections?
0: Yeah. Look, I think that there's there's a couple things going on here, right? They were initially reticent to get involved. Then there was people who hosted a woke activist host a and I'm not making up this word this is their word a die-in, die in d i e a die in at the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta they stormed the Delta Airlines terminal in Atlanta airport and say that you know said things like if you if you don't want to get Involved in, in politics as your business, then it's gonna be our business to get involved in your business. You know, kind of kind of kind of threatening sort of statements from consumers. Then in, they fold. In your face. Then they fold and they capitulate. So these guys are these guys are effectively, in my opinion, spineless in many ways, but they also do a cost-benefit analysis. They're running a company. The people who are the loudest, even if they're not representative of the majority, have made a certain demand that is costing them brand value, putting them as headlines in the news. They'd rather get their name out of the news quickly, capitulate and do whatever it takes to make the woke mob go away. I don't think James Quincy or Ed Bastion, who's the CEO of Delta, I don't think these guys actually feel one way or another about the law. I bet they haven't even read it. I just think they were doing what was most convenient for them. And I mm, think that one be. of the things that one of the things that people on the right may need to do better is to re- elevate the social cost of compliance with the far woke left as well. And I think that. If you're Coca-Cola, it actually works out okay as a trade where you'd rather supplicate to the woke left and issue statements about a voting law in Georgia or teach your employees. I love this one about Coca-Cola. Teach your employees on how to be less white. That's their words, not mine. Diversity training in LinkedIn learning modules made available to its employees taught by Robin DiAngelo. It's a lot easier for Coca-Cola to do that stuff than it is to reckon with a different part of the left that might want you to talk about your product's impact on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, including, by the way, in the very black community that they profess to care so much about. It's actually a lot easier to talk about the other stuff. So it's kind of a trade that works out that, okay, yeah, I don't really love talking about the stuff in voting laws in Georgia, but fine, I'll do that. I'll get on board there. I'll teach my employees on how to be less white. Just don't talk about Coca-Cola. Sort of of like the big banks, right? Racism, you say, yes, let's talk about that. Systemic racism, that sounds great. Just don't
1: say systemic financial risk and and, and we're good. (laughs) All right, guys. Let me run through a couple more things. Uh, The Capitol Hill right in January Mm. changed things for you. Uh, That's what you write about. You, You saw big tech cancel a lot of people it did yeah uh, you wrote a piece in the wall street journal you got a lot of crap from your colleagues and friends correct all I true i did i did all and true and that was a wake up call i am certain for you it was a wake up call for how people were going to react to you agreed on all that 100% so you basically in my words canceled yourself when you stepped down from your company
0: well yeah i mean i, I wouldn't use that term but i but i did what my principles told me was the thing that i needed to do and to me the principle by which i have lived in running a company. And even the principle the basic principle at the heart of my book is the idea that politics has no place in business and business has no place in politics. And even though when I was writing in the Wall Street Journal with my former law professor, I'd gone to law school along the way, my former law professor, and I'm still kind of an academic at heart. I was writing in my personal capacity. I wasn't using my company as a platform to foist these views on anyone. But even though I had drawn that separation when I was now wading into issues as controversial as the ones that I was writing about, I recognized that in the world we live in, it became impossible not to even have the perception that it might be my company's position too. So what I said is, I'm going to step out of running the day-to-day operations. I'm no longer CEO. I'm going to step into the role of a chairman, elevated my longtime CFO to the role of CEO. By the way, he happens to be pretty far on the left. He's brilliant. He's great at his job. It doesn't matter. We We, we disagree about politics. We agree on the mission of our company. But I said that going forward, the voice of the company would not – when I speak in my personal capacity, I'm speaking as a citizen, not as a CEO. The voice of the company would be that of the new CEO going forward. To
1: paraphrase, it was better for the company for you to be on the outside. Exactly. And And I did it to
0: protect the company, given the moment that we live in. But at the same time, I wanted to be uninhibited in speaking in my own voice as a citizen, because too many people in my position love going to the conferences and fancy ski towns and musing about the racially disparate impact of climate change by arriving in your in your. Jet, private jets that burn the same jet fuel. That's a pretty great life to live. It's a lot harder to be able to talk from the inside about how that game is actually played. And somebody needed to do it honestly and without thinking about wearing a company hat and a citizen hat at the same time. I'm speaking 100% as a citizen and wanted to make that really
1: clear. So mm. it was a tough decision, have but you, it was something that I hate. Have you taken the time to study critical race theory? Of course. Um, honestly, what, what, of is, the book. what does it? What does it tell you about... America, where we are, where we're heading, have you been able to find that? Yeah, look, I I have. I mean, I think that the problem with
0: critical race theory as a concept right now is that every time the right gets frustrated with something that their kids are being taught in school, the left's best defense is saying, well, that's not critical race theory. Critical race theory is just a historical lens of analyzing our true history and not suppressing facts about our history. My own view is I don't care what you call it. When you're teaching kids to identify themselves as part of either an oppressed group or an oppressor group based on the color of their skin or their gender, call it critical race theory, call it what you want. It's wrong, it's toxic, and it's divisive. And I think the thing that it preys on, Bill, is it preys on the idea that we are all still today as human beings hungry for a cause, hungry for a sense of purpose, right, hungry for meaning. Hungry for identity. That, that's something that as human beings we crave. As kids, we have all craved. And our kids today crave the same thing. But the difference today is that the things that used to fill that void, ideas like, like patriotism, ideas like faith. We both went to Catholic high schools in Cincinnati. I, I'm not even Catholic, but I'm saying this as, as somebody who 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 still believes in God. You know, ideas like patriotism and faith and hard work that used to give us meaning have since disappeared and receded in American life. And that leaves this moral vacuum that the black hole at the center of our nation's soul is the simple question. You and I were talking about this before. What does it mean to be an American? And when we lack an answer to that question, that's what makes new religions, even if they're secular religions, new religions like wokeism, like scientism, not science, but scientism, the religion, appealing as alternatives. They are the equivalent of our modern opioid for the masses. And when someone st- stops believing in their country or stops believing in God, that doesn't mean they stop believing in things. They just locate those religious attitudes and emotions to a new philosophy and a new dogma wow. instead. So that's what's really going on. How many kids do you have? We have one child. He's uh, 16 His name months.
1: is... Karthik. Karthik. Yeah. He's 16 months? 16 months. You dedicated this book to your son and his generation. And to his generation. I mean, that's that's saying something here. So the future is something that you're concerned about. The future is something that I'm concerned about.
0: And I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time. I went into the book to, to wage a battle in institutional and corporate America. But I came out of writing the book convinced that the most important battle to actually fight is that in our schools, to make sure that the minds of the next generation are left as pure and unadulterated as Americans as they possibly could be. and so that, that's actually if I had to pick one if I had to pick one battle that I would like to win intellectual battle, it would be on the school boards of our country. And if you say it, you could take put whoever you want in the White House in the Senate in the Congress or you could put whoever you want in every school board in every county in America, it's not even close. Wow. The latter is actually far more important to me and to the identity of this country going forward. It's not even close
1: Wow couple more questions. Thank you for your time. Just hang on one second. You're listening to Hammer Time. We'll continue in a moment.
2: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners That's Angie.com, or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
1: Back with Vivek Ramaswamy. How'd I do? Pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Easy, you know what an easy one? It rhymes with cake. Vivek. Vivek. Yeah. Because it's a VI. V K -K. but it it rhymes with cake in the way you pronounce it. You wrote a very uh, interesting book. It's called Woke Inc., and thank you for your time today. Just a few more questions here, okay? In the book, you say, he who has the gold (laughs) makes the rules. Now, I think what you're—it's probably big tech,
0: right? I mean, they're. The... It, it was Wall Street when I heard that saying for the first time. I called it the Goldman Rule. I learned it during my internship at Goldman Sachs in 2006. But today, big tech has even more gold, so they make
1: even more rules. But, so they're bigger than Goldman Sachs.
0: Yeah, you, you know, it's funny. It, it, was, it was it was at an event. I don't want to I don't want to steal the thunder from the book when it comes out in a, in a few weeks. But there was an incident. Let's just say, and at the end of that incident, there was a guy I worked with who said, "Hey, you ever heard of the Golden Rule?" And like, I said, I went to Catholic school. I said, "Oh yeah, that's the one where you you treat others like you want to be treated, right?" Hi. He's like, "No, no, no." <laughs> Ten Commandments. It's it's that he who has the gold makes the rules. I call that the Goldman rule, but that's actually been – that's actually the rule underlying woke capitalism is the people who control the greatest market power get to make the moral rules too.
1: Yeah. You write several times about the threat to democracy or the integrity of democracy. Yeah. How is this thing going to destroy us? Because you got to be pretty powerful to knock this place down.
0: Yeah. Well, you do. And and I think that – the one, there's only a few things that could knock us down, but I think our system of private enterprise is one of those things that has the potential to do it. The way I look at it is America has two parents, okay? Capitalism and democracy. They're both America's parents. 1776 wasn't just the year of the Declaration of Independence. It was the year of the Declaration of Independence and the wealth of nations. Capitalism, democracy, collectivism, individualism, unity, and capitalism all in one. And those ideals were inherently in tension with one another, right? They run roughshod over each other from time to time. And my philosophical worldview is that capitalism and democracy are at their best when we keep them apart from one another. And I think in this moment, what we really need to do is not force capitalism and democracy into the same bed as the woke capitalist movement wants to do, but rather, to borrow the parlance of the moment, to really put in place some social distancing between the two, or else each is going to infect the other to death. And if there's one thing that can take down democracy, ironically, it's actually our system of capitalism itself when it's become infected with ideologies that are antithetical to America itself. And wow. you know, if I could just say one one more Please. thing about that, Bill. You know, I, I think that we as conservatives—I speak as a conservative—I, you know, my sense is you're conservative too. So I, I say we as conservatives have focused so much. On defending the castle of capitalism through the front door over the last forty years, that we didn't even recognize it when the castle was invaded through the back door by the progressive left, by the Chinese Communist Party. And I think the challenge, the defining challenge for the future of the conservative movement today, is how do we sterilize that castle without burning it down?
1: Okay. And it, I think that's actually going to be the challenge. I mean, I consider myself a reporter and. That's why Fair I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. here asking the questions, trying to understand your way of thinking, which, which I find very interesting. But when, invariably, I think whenever you have these forces that are moving all in one direction, well, you're going to get pushback and there will be a reversal. Have you seen that? Yeah. So look, I, I think that
0: there will organically be a reversal, right? Every pendulum that swings in one direction has to return to where it returns. Well, when does that eventually. happen? When the stock but,
1: price crashes but the or time, what? The way I look at it, though, is we can't
0: let that just wait to happen organically now because I think that the time horizon may be longer than America can actually afford to wait as a country. And I can't remember a time in my life where the defining ideals of this country were under greater threat, under greater attack than they are today. So sure, organically, according to the laws of nature, the pendulum will swing back in a different direction in the future. But the way I look at it is is, it's something of a ticking time bomb here, where if the kids who are entering first or second grade today graduate from high school before we have turned this tide, then I think we have lost an entire generation. And America... it has a, has a lot of depth and a lot of a lot of resilience, but it has we have worn it sufficiently thin that we don't have another generation left, or we're not going to have a country at the end of it. Oh. So I think the time I think the time. Right now is not one just to be patient to wait for the tide to turn, but make sure we take the kinds of steps that revive that shared American identity, because if we don't, it's going to be too long before it happens naturally, and we may not have a country
1: left by then. We are speaking on July 7th, so it's 7 7 21. The book is out on what day? August 17th. August. So we got another month here, so if listeners... Yeah. Just be aware. Yeah.
0: It's it's final. You know, it's, it's, final you know, it's available and everything online, but uh, it'll be out. It'll be out formally that
1: day. I mean, literally. I mean, every page is packed with information. There are your own ideas. It's very original thought. I encourage everybody to check it out. And make up their own mind. What do you ultimately want to come from this? I want to help
0: restart the conversation about what it means to be an American in the year 2021. To me, America isn't a place. It is an idea. It is a vision of what a place can be. You know, if, if it was just a geographic space, we'd be left as a country where we occupy a common space and do what our iPhones tell us to do on a given day. That's not a country to me. That's not America to me. America is a set of ideals and a set of dreams that I have had the privilege of living. I have lived the full arc of the American dream. And to me, the thing that I want to see come out of this is a conversation across the political spectrum across our institutions about what those ideals are that we all share in common, irrespective of what our politics may be. And in the private sector in particular, Our companies, our baseball stadiums, these used to be the sanctuaries where we could all come together irrespective of the color of our skin, irrespective of our politics. And what happens when politics merges with capitalism and you're left with woke capitalism today is that those apolitical sanctuaries are gone and that forecloses the possibility of solidarity as a people. And so what I actually hope to accomplish through this isn't winning some sort of culture war that we're in. But to create the space to have the shared solidarity as Americans that our democracy depends upon, and if I'm not successful or others like me aren't successful, I'm worried about what what we might have left as a country 10 years from now. And I hope that this is the beginning of changing the tide and ambitiously, Bill, I hope that the publication of this book marks the beginning of the end of the woke movement as we know it. Not just for the sake of ending wokeism, but more importantly, to revive a sense of American identity and true American diversity and pluralism that fills the moral vacuum that wokeism fills today.
1: Well, Woke Inc. is the title of the book out in August. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for your time. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.